0: Looking at uh, the journey of uh, Moses and the people through the book of Exodus. And uh, today we come to one of the plagues, the plagues of the frogs. And so we're in uh, chapter 8, beginning in verse 6. And so Aaron stretched out his uh, hand over the waters, and frogs came and covered up the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and so that frogs covered the land. Then Pharaoh, uh, summoned uh, Moses and Aaron and said, pray to the Lord, uh, for me that the, the frog, that we will be, uh, rid of the frogs for, uh, for me and my people. And, uh, Aaron and Moses said, To uh, Pharaoh, we will give you the honor of setting the time when we will pray for you and for your officials and for your peoples that you and your houses will be rid of the frogs, except they will remain in the Nile tomorrow, said Pharaoh, Um, Moses and Aaron replied, it shall be exactly as you've asked. And so tomorrow we will pray and you and your houses and your officials and your people will be rid of the frogs except for those that stay in the Nile. And so Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh and after they left, they cried out to the Lord about the frogs that the Lord had brought upon Pharaoh. And the Lord did exactly as Moses and Aaron requested and frogs died in the houses in the courtyards and in the fields and they were piled in heaps and the land reeked of them. And when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and he did not listen to Moses and Aaron exactly as the Lord had said. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. As a Westerner with an inquiring mind, I can't help uh, but do uh, this when I come to the story of Pharaoh and the plagues. I pay attention to the fact that on a number of times after the first five plagues, we're told that Pharaoh hardens his heart. He gets stubborn and even though he said he'll let the people go, he changes their mind. And and I left out an important verse where Pharaoh said, I mean, if you'll come and pray for me, I will let you go uh, and offer sacrifices in the, in the wilderness. So I think about that. But then when you get to the next five plagues, what happens is Pharaoh gets stubborn. But the Bible says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would let the people go. And so with my mind, it's like, well, which is it? did Pharaoh make these decisions on his own or did God override Pharaoh and and compel Pharaoh to make decisions in certain ways? And it's an important question for me because I want to know if Pharaoh's responsible. I want to know if Pharaoh is accountable for all this bad stuff that happened to his people. Now that's me and and I'm a Westerner with uh, an inquiring mind. But what I found out interestingly is that that Hebraically, the first Jewish hearers and readers of the Bible would not have asked that question at all because for them it was axiomatic. It was just fundamental that we are created with freedom of choice. And if we're created with freedom of choice, then Pharaoh had to have freedom of choice as well. In fact, one of the things they reasoned is why would God give us the Ten Commandments or give us any of the laws at all if we weren't free to choose whether to obey them or not. And they said all the Torah, which is like all the instruction of the Older Testament, all of the teaching is built, they said, upon the foundation of freedom of choice. And even uh, modern Jews understand this. There was a Nobel Prize winning author, Isaac Beshevitz Singer, who one time made this uh, observation a few years back. He said, we must be free. We have no choice. I mean, God was that much into granting people's freedom that, that the Jews know you're just free and that everyone is free and that uh, you may not always like your choices, but you have them. And think about that famous Jew in the concentration camp, Viktor Frankl, who would emerge from the concentration camp and write the classic book, Man's Search for meaning, but he found out that even with, uh, when most everything he had was stripped away from him in the concentration camp by the Nazi guards. He still had the freedom to choose his response to the situation and he still had the freedom to find whatever meaning he could find in the situation. And that's a classic Hebraic response is we, no matter where we are in whatever situation we find ourselves, we are free. So for them, it'd be real obvious that Pharaoh is free and Pharaoh makes these decisions on his own. Some years ago, I was in Israel. I would one of my mentors, Ray Vanderland, and he made this observation. He said in the ancient world, when they used a phrase like predestination, they didn't mean it the way oftentimes we throw that term about. What they meant was if you make a choice, certain things are predestined, like they're just certain consequences are going to follow. And that's how they understood predestination. Not that you never had a choice, but that actually you had a choice. But once you make a choice, certain things are going to happen. So, for example. The way we use predestination is to say, well, what did I, David, expect? My maternal grandfather was bald. (laughs) And then, but the way they would use it is, so, David, you never exercised and you ate bad foods. What did you think your blood tests would show? That would be the predestination, that you had a choice, but once you made the choice, certain things flowed. From it. And so one of the things they hold to, Hebraically, is that Pharaoh had a choice. And he kept choosing again and again against God and against God's people, and as we'll find out in a minute, really against his own people as well uh, so they understand the freedom part they also understand I think sometimes um, ancient people things we don't understand which is God will often use word pictures to communicate in symbols and so when you think of, of, a, of a heart that is heavy or a heart that is hard that's a word picture is it not have you ever met somebody who was really mean and you said that they were hard hearted And that's a picture. And so what you can see in this picture of the first five plagues is that Pharaoh's heart gets heavier and heavier and harder and harder. Every time he chooses against a God and against the Israelites, he he even becomes less compassionate. And so that was a picture. Uh, that they would use, that to be heavy-hearted meant you just didn't care. And the picture we get of Pharaoh in the Exodus is that somebody who, well, quite frankly, doesn't care. In fact, the very first plague that happens and the water turns into blood, he has two responses. One is he has his magicians add to the blood. Now, how is that helpful? Just like in the plague today, he has his magicians add to the frogs. Uh, Next week's kind of a fun scripture because he tries to add to the lice and the gnats. Now, come on, we're all in South Texas. That is not a good idea. And you can just see he doesn't really care about his people. He cares about his power and his influence. In fact, after the first plague, which we didn't uh, read here, but after the first plague, we're told that Pharaoh, even with all this stuff going on around him and the water turning to blood, walks back into his palace. And one of the translations is unconcerned. Just his people are suffering and he doesn't give a rip. And he walks back into the palace. He's a person with a heavy heart. And so one of the things, a Hebrew mind reading this, is it says basically, this person had a choice and they made bad choice after bad choice and they just didn't care. But what was really fun is a few years ago I realized that the Bible was written in this story and told even before it was written down, in such a way that the Egyptians would get the word picture too. And I wanted to put this on the bulletin for you, but we had an early deadline and I was, I'm was i sort of last minute when I write my sermon, so I didn't get it. But you can Google it uh, and find it. It's called the the Egyptian weighing of the heart. And so one of the interesting things is the Egyptians talked about the heart, too, in, the, in their Book of the Dead. And it goes something like this. When an Egyptian dies, uh, they, they go to the underworld and they go through this ceremony and their heart is put on a scale. And on one side, the scale is their heart. And on the other side, of the scale is a feather. And if their heart weighs more than a feather, then it's like a trap door opens, you know, and they're, they're gone. It's bad news. They're off to perdition. But what happens is they taught with every good and kind deed that you did, your heart got lighter and lighter and lighter. So they understood that if your heart was heavy, it meant that you were cold and it meant that in your afterlife, you're probably going to be in trouble. Now, this is one of the interesting things that I found. And you can look it up. All you have to do is like Google Egyptian uh, Book of the Dead, chapter 125. And what they, it gives before the weighing of the heart ceremony, there are 42 questions that a person who's who's recently died is asked. And the right answer to every one of these questions is no, okay? The right answer is no. So it's like, have you ever told a lie? That's question eight. Question 13, have you ever made anyone weep? Question 26, have you ever shut your ears to the truth? Question 27, have you ever blasphemed God? Question 28, have you ever been violent? Question 29, have you ever stopped the flow of water? Because water is so vital in that part of the world. And then number 38, my favorite, have you ever been arrogant? And the right answer is no, but when I looked at this quiz and compared it to Pharaoh, I found that 25 of the 42, I'm sorry, there are 42 questions, he bombs He's in trouble. If I can steal from Jim Gaffigan for a moment, you can see that Pharaoh's going to hell in two religions. I mean, he's lost. And it's just obvious to the Israelites and it's obvious to the Egyptians that this is a person who's not compassionate, who just doesn't get it and doesn't care. But what's interesting to me on this story is this is a person that was born with every advantage. The person supposedly the most free in Egypt, though, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, he is responsible that the Nile flood annually and that's, that the sun comes up, and those are some pretty big things, but he has more freedom about decisions than anybody else that lives in this country, and everybody else works for him, and yet he turns out to be a disaster. And there's this other guy named Moses who is born to slaves, raised in the house of uh, the previous Pharaoh, and then escapes, comes back. And leads the slaves to freedom and Moses has very few of the advantages of Pharaoh and yet he ends up being compassionate and a blessing and Pharaoh ends up being a disaster what happened I want to suggest this and this is where the hardening of the heart comes back in. Pharaoh used his freedom to simply serve his own indulgences, his own self-interest, and his own arrogance. Everything that Pharaoh did was first and foremost about Pharaoh. And so one of the ways Jewish scholars look at it is, is that he keeps making decisions against God and against his people. And finally, he makes enough of those decisions that just becomes the pattern of his life. He's just so completely self-centered and self-interested, he can't choose another way anymore. It's almost as if it would take a miracle for him to become compassionate. And God doesn't choose to perform that miracle. But God rather lets him go on the journey of self-serving, self-interest, arrogance that he has been on. And so many scholars believe that's what it means by God hardened Pharaoh's heart. In other words, Pharaoh's on the way with the first five plagues. And so finally the second five plagues, God's like, if that's the way you want it. If that's the way you want to go, Pharaoh, if that's what you're going to be, I'm not going to stop you. And so by the end of the story, Pharaoh has few choices. He's lost most everything and he's the most enslaved person in the whole book. Because he's enslaved to his own selfish desires. Um, One of the things that some scholars say is we see in this picture that there are degrees of freedom. And the more you use your freedom to serve yourself and not others, the less free you become. And eventually, like Pharaoh, you become completely enslaved to your own desires and you can't make a decent choice for other people. Now, why do I mention that? Well, A, it is in the Bible passage for today, but B, it's Fourth of July weekend when we wave the flags and, and we talk about freedom. And I think it's important to talk about freedom, and freedom is significant. As I mentioned, it's foundational to our, our Judeo-Christian faith. But one of the things I think the problem is that the people who often talk the most and shout the most about freedom probably have the most misunderstood Uh, approach to freedom because they think of freedom as, look, I'm free to do whatever I want. Biblically, that's not freedom. Freedom means you have the opportunity to do something for somebody else. That's true freedom. Paul put it pretty bluntly to the Galatians in chapter 5, verse 13. He said, don't use your freedom for self-indulgence. Use it as an opportunity to love and serve other people. And where do you think Paul learned that? Probably from Jesus, who once said, I have come to give my life for others. I am here to serve on another occasion, he said. Jesus, fully human and yet fully God, perhaps the most free person who ever lived, used his freedom to serve not himself, and to serve, but to serve others. But you and I can wave the flag, jump up and down, cook hot dogs, and become more and more selfish by the day. And it would, and it would mean that we really didn't understand freedom. And it would be the end result that we would become like Pharaoh, enslaved. And so I think Moses is able, as a slave, to do what Pharaoh cannot do, as a king, because he's made his purpose someone other. Than himself. This past week, um, my colleague Scott Hare, who's the pastor of our Riverside campus, uh, told me about a YouTube video. It's four years old now, but uh, it, it's pretty interesting. You, I, I don't know if you've heard of it. It's how to find your life's purpose in five minutes. Have you heard that? Interesting premise. Probably it over promises, but uh, it's had about 7 million people look at it. It's, it's by a guy named Adam Leipzig, who uh, was in the entertainment industry for years. He was behind uh, the movie Good Morning Vietnam, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, when he was with Disney. And then with National Geographic, he was behind March of the Penguins. And now he runs a creative consulting firm, and he teaches a class at the University of California, Berkeley, on how to help students find their purpose. But this is his story, he said it was the 25th anniversary of of those who, who were in the Yale class of 1979. And he said, and we're under a tent and the band's playing and the music's blaring. We can hardly hear each other. So none of us leave the tent and go to a choir spot. And as we talked about our life in the first 25 years, he said, it was interesting. A lot of people were on not just their first house, but their second house. And they'd accumulated all sorts of stuff and uh, been very successful. But he said, what became obvious is about 80% of these people, the 25th reunion that he talked with, were very unhappy and couldn't find any meaning in all the stuff that they had in life. And he said, yet there were about another 20%. He said, and the 20% that I was with, he said, when we went to Yale, he said, we didn't necessarily take classes that would get us a job when we graduated, so we'd be rich. He said, though we, you know, did well, he said, we took classes for the joy of learning. Um, We took classes to try to make us better human beings. and, And he said, what I found out, that the difference between the 20% and the 80% is 80% had no clue why they were here on earth other than to try to be successful and get things for themselves while the other 20% had figured out their life's purpose. So what he came up with was a little five question thing. And you can find this on YouTube, uh, uh, that if you can answer these five questions, he said, you can kind of figure out why you're here. The five questions start like this. Who are you? Well, that's not a hard one, Right. You know, insert name here. I always insert a uh, uh, child of God because that that's who I am. Um, I, then what do you do? So you could insert. So for me, I, I mentor and I teach. Uh, and then there are three more questions. And not only who are you and what do you do, but who do you do it for? What do those people need? And then what will be the change in their life as a result of what you've given them? And he said the genius of these five questions is that the majority of the questions are other-directed. They are about somebody else other than ourselves. And Leipzig goes on to say that the real meaning and the real joy and the real satisfaction in life is found not in serving ourselves, but it's found in serving others. And I simply want to say to you this morning, I think Moses figured that out and Pharaoh didn't.